Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by MIPS, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. I'm Aiden, and I'm really excited to bring you another episode of the Timeout Podcast in 2021. Our next guest for season two is Sydney-based ophthalmologist and surgeon, academic and educator across the spectrum of eye health, Professor John Grigg. Prof Grigg, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Aidan, and thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you on the show. I'm really looking forward to chatting about the journey you've taken to get to where you are today. Firstly, can you tell us a bit more about your specialty and the work that you do? Well, I'm an academic ophthalmologist, and uh, it's been a complex path where I, how I've got here, but I've, apart from the general ophthalmology training, I've completed fellowships in paediatric ophthalmology and glaucoma and inherited eye disease and visual electrophysiology, so quite an eclectic group of things. But it's easiest to sort of think of that children's eye disease is really a horizontal component of ophthalmology, whereas sort of the other subspecialties of ophthalmology are more vertical sort of things. So glaucoma or retina or sort of, and all those different diseases can affect children. But in the adult sort of way we look at things, we, we tend to have a subspecialty in those isolated areas, which sort of is an interesting sort of concept when you think of the eye being quite a small area and that we, you can specialize in all sorts of areas of the eye. You know, and so we can, we can break the eye up into about eight different parts and there's a subspecialist for each of those parts basically. I think um, it's it's so fascinating, um, the amazingly intricate work. And one of the reasons we're really looking forward to chatting to you is ophthalmology is probably the specialty we get one of the least exposures to in medicine. Um, do you think that's changing or is there any reason for that? I think that's one of the great challenges. And it's a challenge that people planning curriculums really sort of see that it's a, it's a small specialty. The reality is that uh, in work that we've done and we know that about sort of 3% of consultations in a general practice are primarily, the primary reason is for, opth- for an ophthalmic vision problem. And about 6% of those coming through an emergency department have an eye basis to it in some way. So it's actually quite a lot. So you know, if you see 100 patients a week, you see sort of three to seven in that sort of time. So it's actually a reason. So we've been very strong in trying to maintain uh, ophthalmology in the curriculum and uh, it varies around the country we've actually got one of our research students is pulling the data together what every medical school in Australia does and allows to do that we've had to fight for the space and so at Sydney we we have about uh, 12 days of ophthalmology now which is quite a lot compared to the other programs and part of the way we do that is that we have a logbook which is a plus and a minus because it's the bane of students' lives, but it's actually forces, and we, we sort of allocated, we think that students should see 35 patients, which, and the patients are sort of classified according to the commonest cause of blindness in our country and some emergency patients. And, and so if you can do that, we believe you'll be competent to work in an emergency department to see somebody coming in with an eye problem. That means that 
because we, we've managed to get that part of the curriculum, that the powers of B have to provide time to see those patients. And so then that becomes the way it's done. So there's a whole lot of online lectures, but it's really the hands-on that's really quite critical to gain those skills. Because every we need people to be able to measure visual acuity and communicate it to the eye registry. You can't just say that the patient's got poor vision. You need to sort of give them a scale on what's going on. Yeah. That's really, and then same, you need to be able to work, you know, um, use a slit lamp and sort of find things out. And so every emergency department has a slit lamp. Then sort of we're moving into a new era of optic disc imaging. I think that in, in all your careers, you'll see applications on smartphones that'll, rather than the ophthalmoscope. And that sort of stuff is moving in. And the price is sort of starting to come into parity with an ophthalmoscope. And so then you'll sort of be able to see things. We've, we've done a number of studies in our department looking at people coming in with sort of um, maybe into a say neurological classification and basically 25% of those people, the direct ophthalmoscope when it was used missed or the people using it missed the signs and these some of these were life-threatening conditions. So, right. you know, so now we're sort of advocating fundus photos and interpreting that to sort of really sort of advance, but that's sort of, you know, a, a real practical application of something into coming into an emergency department with maybe a headache or some other sign and, uh, part of the exam we're supposed to look at the optic nerve but if we don't have the skills anymore then we need to sort of use other ways to do that and that's what we're trying to sort of convey to our students that there is a lot of technology there that can help do this and uh, rather than sort of just the ophthalmoscope and, and really it's being able to interpret the findings from those sort of things yeah yeah to sort of work right. in emergency department so yeah and I think that's part of it and and, and also you know, the two commonest causes of blindness in Australia um, after age-related macular degeneration, then there's diabetes and glaucoma. And they have a long asymptomatic period where if you can intervene, then you can prevent blindness. Sort of knowing to ask just the right questions. So it's just learning the, the history skills to say, well, okay, then we, you need to go and get an eye exam. Yeah, well, that's really interesting to hear. And um, hopefully we can kind of demystify um, some of those um, maybe misconceptions or those unknowns about ophthalmology for, for all of our listeners today. It's certainly, um, John, it sounds like you certainly have a, a lot of different interests um, in, in the academic and clinical sphere. For someone as busy as yourself, firstly, just um, take us through your, your morning so far. Do you have any kind of morning routines? What does that look like for you? I mean, you say morning routine before you go to work, or <laughs> or or just the, the normal working week. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm fortunate. I have a, a varied week basically. Yeah. I have a day of private work. That's usually Monday. Tuesday is my children's hospital day, so I have a children's clinic alternating with um a, uh, a operating list one fortnight. So there's half a day there where I have research on that day as well. Also some admin. Wednesday is my Sydney Eye Hospital University clinical research day with with patients and uh, an operating list fortnightly then have a regular sydney eye hospital uh general clinic with based on glaucoma and inherited retinal diseases on a, a thursday then um research in the afternoons and there's also a private operating list there comes up occasionally and friday is either inherited eye disease clinics or research so it's sort of always a bit of variety and, and, and mixed in there somewhere is uh, we, we run a um, Master of Ophthalmic Science uh, postgraduate coursework program. There's currently 80 students enrolled in that. And that's um, where students across New Zealand and Australia, and that's 
targeting people who are interested in doing ophthalmology and giving them the skills in ophthalmic anatomy, physiology, and optics, and uh, come together for a practical course, how to use that and apply that into ophthalmology. So that's a very useful sort of thing. So that people do that one unit of study per semester. And so that's a, a good way to prepare. And about 70% of people who are on the eye training program have done one of those units of study. Right, right. I see. Okay. Well, it certainly sounds like an, enough to keep you busy. Um, after that week, what do you get up to on the weekend? What are your interests outside of medicine? Well, it used to be travel and, uh, <laughs> but, oh, of course. but uh, not so much these days. Yeah. Just other photography and cooking and things like that and gardening sort of things. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, do, do you have a, do you have a special dish behavior really? <laughs> yeah, true. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it's usually one of the fish ones. Uh, yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. Of a fish barramenti. Yeah. Um, so we've chatted a bit about op ophthalmology and ophthalmic surgery. Um, but if there was one profession outside of medicine that you could try, what would it be and why? Well, before I started ophthalmology, I, I worked for 18 months as emergency registrar. I really enjoyed that time. I think it gave me a good grounding in, in general medicine, which has been very helpful for ophthalmology because I think a lot of people tend to forget that the body's connected to the eye or the eye might be connected to the rest of the body. So you do need to know a lot of general medicine. Yeah. And so that was the thing I enjoyed a lot. Yeah. And anything outside of medicine completely that, that takes your fancy? Um, I grew up on a pineapple farm, so still oh, wow. there's family interest in that. So that's sort of... Uh, something that's quite remote and uh and different yeah it certainly is well look that might be a good opportunity actually to um chat a little bit about your early years john to understand you know where you've got to today um can you tell us a bit about your your early years and and growing up well in growing up i sort of grew up on a farm which grew pineapples and um and then went to boarding school um, then uh, had an interest in medicine and went to Queensland University, lived in a residential college there, which was a lot of fun in those days. And um, then I, it was during that time, I think, lucky during that program, which had been a new curriculum as well, that they had a rotation called surgical specialties where you had two weeks of ophthalmology, a week of ENT and a week of neurosurgery in that time and really enjoyed the ophthalmology that was experience in that time this is back in the 1980s and uh, things are just starting to change in ophthalmology at that time the intraocular lenses were just becoming uh, part of routine cataract surgery care so it's, you know, it's not all that long ago that this revolution that we've seen in ophthalmology and so after that I sort of then enjoy my intern and residence years um, in those days we sort of did a you know it, it was so if you wanted to go on the ophthalmology training program, you had to do a minimum of three years, which is intern, RMO one and two, or however you, however you want to classify that. The college at that time really wanted general experience as well before you really narrowed down onto the eye. And so I did that. You used to have to do a, a basic science primary before you can be considered for that. So you had to do anatomy, physiology, and optics. And there was a three-hour paper in each of those and a viva in each of those we had to travel to. And at the time, you had to pass all of them in one go um, to get on, if you missed one of the things, you got to do the whole lot again. So it's, these days it's changed. And, and that it, the big change is around about 2000 when um, the primary became part of the training program because there's a whole lot of people who, who are trying to get onto training programs and perhaps then they didn't have any other qualification. 
it was also that change that led us to developing the master's course, which, and we combined that with the, the University of Otago, because we both had run courses before. And so that's then become as a, a unified distance learning course to prepare people for that. But along the way after the resident, you know, so in those days we had to sort of, I did some research in while well, wanting to get on the training program and also worked as an emergency registrar and a, a relieving surgical registrar, all the things. So I spent five years before I got on the training program. Right, right. And, and I was fortunate to get a position in Sydney because in Brisbane, there were a few people there that used to take you in order of getting your primary and there's still a few people ahead of me at the time. And so I got on at that time. Right. But, well, but you um, know, the, the, I suppose that the five years, it was sort of, it maybe sounds long now, but at the time it was all part of the adventure and uh, yeah, it, and you're gaining good skills to get on basically. Absolutely. Well, it that sounds like a very interesting journey. As, as you said, um, there's a lot to unpack along the way. Um, I have to go back to the start and ask a little bit more about the, the pineapple farm. Where, where was that? And um, what kind of influence did that have on you as a young boy? Well, that was, uh, it's in the, the Glasshouse Mountains, part of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, a, a little town called Wemuran. And uh, well, obviously had a big influence because I spent all the holidays and stuff working on a pineapple farm. And, you know, it was, it was quite a um, large pineapple farm and um, produced, you know, it was interesting in that my father always believed in research. And so it developed right. different varieties that suited the Australian climate to um, provide a sweet pineapple that you could buy all year round. And uh, then as the sort of second fruit went to the cannery to, for tinged fruit. But, you know, right. And, you know, yeah, well, uh, uh, random facts are that, you know, you plant the top of the pineapple and it takes two years for it to grow before you can get one pineapple and you get a second one and then you start all over again. So it's sort of quite a long, it's a you know, three to four year process and only get a couple of pineapples. Yeah, I, there you go. I didn't know that. Um, I, I was going to ask the, yeah, the influence of maybe growing up on a farm for your career. That's um, fascinating to hear about the research uh, implications for pineapples and maybe draw it to your own, you know, research career well, so many years down the track. I think that, well, there is an influence in there. So trying to find the facts and things that you then apply later on. Yeah. And do you think there were other values that you kind of gained from, um, you know, your family at the time? I didn't know. I don't know if you had any siblings, but, you know, thing, things like hard work, I imagine growing up on a farm would be pretty important. Yeah, I suppose. And just to, the ethics of doing that and sort of in competing, you know, sort of, it was always any agricultural business, you've got to learn sort of the good and the bad and the seasons and some of those unpredictable, some things you can plan for. So working about how to plan for things, I think helps as well. Okay. There you go. Research and planning. That, that's very good to hear. Um, you, you mentioned obviously eventually ending up in medicine uh, at, at university. Where did that interest come from? Were you always interested in that as a child? I was I think I became more interested towards the end of high school. It's sort of been choosing sort of subjects that really enjoyed the biology. Is either sort of, you know, I had done agricultural science as a subject as well, and I sort of tossed those two around and sort of chose more the biology. Did you have people kind of in your family or anything like that who had, had done medicine previously or any other mentors? Well, yeah, my mother had done a science degree at uni, so which is unusual at the time. And sort of, so there, there's always an interest in that sort of science and, and biology and zoology. Tell us about the process of kind of applying to and then getting into medical school. Was it what you expected? Did, did you change a lot as you were there? 
I think once I'd sort of decided, I mean, I because of the subjects I chose, I sort of chose that path sort of thing mm-hmm. as you went into your year 11 and 12. And um, I suppose I just worked towards that. And yeah. and in those days, it was a you know, six-year um, out-of-school program. It was, um, it was an interesting program because it was the second year of a new curriculum that had at Queensland Uni, which many of the things that are now in the standard for the postgraduate course were all there. You know, it was just divided up into three plus three, basically, and there's overlap in the middle where the basic sciences were, were really integrated into the clinical sort of things, and there's a whole lot of public health done along the way. And so, you know, and there was a, a research project that went over 18 months, but we didn't get given time off. We just had to do that as we went along. That sounds it, familiar. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, all those sort of things. So the basic building blocks of the program are very similar. It's just they've got either different labels or allocated to different sort of time spans, really. Yeah. And what were you like as a, as a medical student? Were you extremely studious or, or um, did you have a lot I mean, of other both. interests? Oh, well, yeah. yeah, I played a lot of sport at that time and okay. tennis you know, quite a bit. And, um, and you know, we, the, we were lucky in that we had rural rotation. So I went to Rockhampton and Toowoomba for parts of my program and things. So, you know, all those sort of, you know, there's, there's still the things there. I mean, there's still the same issues that occur with, you know, distribution of workforce and things that people were trying to address 30 years ago. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like um, you had a lot of experiences in med school and um, obviously learned a lot both in the, in the curriculum and outside of it. What were kind of the greatest lessons that you learned? Maybe were there any lessons that you wish you'd learned earlier when you were um, a medical student? I think you're sort of quite, as long as you're immersed in the whole program, I think that's was, was a sort of lesson. You, you got the most out of it and, you know, it's, you come to the, all these subspecialties or different specialties and sort of as long as you immerse yourself along the way then that helped trying to gain as much clinical exposure as you could going through it really made a, a difference I think because then you can sort of apply the theory to the, the very clinical presentations. That's really interesting I think that's a theme that we've heard from a lot of the surgeons we've interviewed actually that it's not necessarily about you know topping the class and getting the best marks knowing the most it's actually often as much if not more about throwing yourself into things and getting involved and being, um, you know, engaged. Is, is that something you've seen well, throughout I, your career? I think so. But I, but I think one of the things you're trying to learn is one of the goals, you know, broadly speaking is in the medicine is how do you differentiate normal from abnormal? So by right. seeing lots of cases, you can see the variations. You can see out what's a normal variation from what's a you know, disease. And it's just trying to pick that normal from abnormal all the time. And that occurs across every discipline, you know, but it's quite relevant in, in ophthalmology. There's a lot of varied sort of appearances of, of the, you know, either cornea or the retina in particular. And you've got to work out, is that a normal variation or is it one that's contributing to the disease or the symptoms? And so just by the more you, you see, then the more you can work out what's normal and what's not normal. We mentioned, or we, we spoke a little bit earlier about you being drawn to ophthalmology um, but taking one step back from that, did you always see yourself as doing surgery or a, a hands-on kind of specialty? Was that something you were drawn to? Not really. I mean, I, I you know, I, I enjoyed all aspects. I mean, I enjoyed the surgical side of things, but also enjoyed the medical side of things. And I suppose that's why I ended up with ophthalmology, really, because it's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. It's both medicine and surgery, and it's got great gadgets. So it's sort of... yeah. You know, it, 
you can actually see the pathology. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to hearing about some of the great gadgets in terms of that process of picking a specialty. A lot of our, uh, you know, listeners, the, the medical students, the junior doctors um, are on that pathway. Do you have any particular advice for those thinking about how to get to that, <laughs> that end? Well, I think it, it's always hard when you're starting, but you've got to find something that you like. So something, and that, and, and that may come from a series of lectures you've heard. You might be fascinated by the subject that you had, or you might be inspired by some of the, the, the people, the registrars or, or the teachers you've got. There'll be something that clicks with what you, you're seeing and that will inspire you to sort of do more in a way. And I think that's sort of the path. And so once you find something that you, you like, it might be the group of people that you identify with in some ways, um, or it, the subject matter or the particular medical issue, then you really sort of follow the path of how you how can you do this more? And more it might be that you want to be specialized in that area or might have a sub special area as a, or special interest as a general practitioner. So you may, but whatever you do, it's something that you become passionate about because in the end, it's what you're going to do for the rest of your life, pretty much or the next 30 or 40 years. And that's a long time. So you want to do something that's interesting to you, what you, what you want to do because a lot of time to pass. Yeah. And, you know, you know, there's a lot of, and you sort of feel when you're starting off, there's a lot of hurdles where you get to, but it, it's sort of that journey is just as important as getting all the, the goals. Yeah. I think that's, again, a common thread that um, a lot of surgeons have mentioned that you've mentioned again today that ultimately you have to like what you're doing and because it's going to be something, you, you know, you do your whole life. Yeah. Um, you mentioned liking the basic science and also liking the, the people, maybe some mentors that are involved. Yeah. Um, did you did you have, um, it sounds like you, you have a love of the basic science. Did you have mentors who kind of helped you along that journey? Uh, look, I think you know, we were lucky we had a good group of people, particularly teaching anatomy and physiology when I was a medical student. I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed sort of the neuroanatomy, which I suppose gave me an interest into the eye, which is all those pathways, okay. cranial nerve pathways and visual processing and things like that sort of sparked my interest. And then when you saw it in practice in, in clinical side of things and just, you know, the registrars and the consultants at the time were all enthusiastic about what they were doing. And so that you know, with a combination of things. And and then you sort of, once you experience a little bit, you know, I was fortunate to get a job as a, you know, an eye resident and sort of start to see what's going on. And, you know, in the eye resident jobs I had was that, you know, that was about my second year. You actually had to see a whole lot of patients and, and you know, work out it quickly, how to use the slit lamps and how to, you know, do things and um, just um, really sort of sparked my interest more. And so then I decided to do that basic science exams which you had to do before you got on the program and so I was studying part-time while I was doing the other jobs and I suppose that's how we ended up there yeah um so to to continue on that journey um you you graduated medical school we, we've spoken about a couple of the jobs that you did did you stay in Queensland and um do, do those surgical jobs that you mentioned well yeah well actually I, I was fortunate because we had I was a resident for three years and then, then was a relieving registrar. But then at that time I was able to do most of the common medical terms. So I did cardiology and endocrinology and neurology, mm -hmm. did neurosurgery and plastics. So we were quite lucky to get a broad experience. So I, you know, anything that was connected to the eye, I was able to do. And um, 
Queensland also had a great system, I think, for helping to manage country sort of things from, from your, after your intern year, you had to spend one term as what we call a country reliever. Right. So you'd be sent to relieve the, the local doctors in the small towns as often there'd be a solo GP in the, who had, was a medical superintendent. So you, you came in and worked for five days in their practice while they had five days off out of the, the month. And so you're in charge of the hospital and the private practice in your second year, it's great. And uh, you know, difficult patient in the general practice, you'd admit them under yourself and go and sort them out that night or whatever. You would have learned a lot, I imagine. You did, yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, one week I think it flew somebody out every night. But the great thing was that you, you knew the registrars back in your teaching hospital, and so you could ring them up and ask them the dumb questions that you needed to right. know. And that was that connection. I think that was very helpful in those days. I mean, you know, the obstetrics are a bit scary. Even did a, you know, pri you know, a private delivery out there so because they wanted to go private i was the only doctor in town it didn't make any difference but <laughs> not much choice <laughs> not much choice but i think it's sort of that was that connection back to the teaching hospitals that helped you know with the registrars to help get you through those difficult times yeah there was a lot of uncertainty do you have you know any p particular stories or not not uh not necessarily horror stories but any, you know anything that stands out from the time i, I remember sort of I had done a pediatrics term, but you know, I was in this big uh, you know, district hospital, really, in I think it was in Gympie in Queensland, and so a child came with his abdominal pain and it looked like an interception. And so right. I had to make the call. There wasn't this was before the helicopter, so we had a, an hour and a half police escort ambulance trip down to the Royal Children's Hospital, you know, on an end of a long weekend with them sort of police cars racing ahead and we were doing some ridiculous speed. And the child did have that. But, you know, right. it was a different sort of world at that time. Now you'd have the, the helicopter crew come and pick up the baby or whatever, but uh, you had to sort of have this sort of skill. So it, it was a, you certainly learnt to sort of think on your feet and then you had to back your decisions at the time. Yeah, well, I can imagine it would have stood you in good stead, um, especially for those uh, emergency medicine. Um, I think you mentioned it was 18 months. Um, yeah. Tell us, tell us a bit about that. Were you still kind of focused on ophthalmology the whole time? Well, I mean, I, I was wanting to get on the ophthalmology training program at that point uh -huh. in time, but you know, the, in those days, it weren't unaccredited positions. And so either you're on or you're off, but you had to sort of then demonstrate that you could perform at a, a registrar level. Right. In those days, an A&E registrar was a very good experience. I preferred that to perhaps then just doing general surgical sort of things because I, I liked the mix of the medicine. And so... You know, we got to do the, the whole thing, do the rotating to the nights. And at nights, you also were the medical registrar for the teaching hospitals and uh, sorted out at coronary care and things like that. While, while the medical registrar had their two days off and very good experience. Yeah. And do you have, was there something or kind of any particular um, lessons, I suppose, that you, that you can pass on? Um, I'm thinking, you know, to the extent of perhaps people doing specialties in terms that you know they're not sure if that's what they're going to end up doing um, and obviously you've done this term that was different to what you ended up doing but you it benefited you a lot do you have advice oh, in that regard look i think you know, that's where the emergency is quite good because everything comes through the door so you'll see a few of your things that you might be interested in but it gives you a very good systematic way of approaching clinical medicine and you know you and at the end of the day it's sort of trying to manage people and so that a lot of that 
there's a case now it might be more focused on just managing their eyes, but yet it still comes in handy every every day, really in sort of realizing the much more of the eye diseases are connected to systemic disease and you need to be aware of that. Yeah. And so and certainly the complexity in eye disease now in the way we're going is sort of the what's left in hospitals is really systemic disease with you know an eye complication. Mm-hmm. Maybe diabetes or inflammatory eye disease or inherited eye disease. And a lot of the more simple things are done outside the hospitals and outpatient departments. Yeah. You um, mentioned the, um, obviously, um, ophthalmology training program, which you, you did get onto. Tell us a bit about those years of your life and, and that experience on the program. Oh, look, they, they were great years. I mean, the Sydney Eye Hospital program rotates um, to, well, now we, we rotate to about eight different teaching hospitals in Sydney, plus also to Wagga, sort of to, to all the provincial cities. We, it's the largest training program in the country. And so we've registered to go to Darwin and Hobart as well from here. I mean, I went to um, Albury at the time, but now that's onto the Melbourne training program now. But um, and that were great experiences. I think one of the things was that being exposed to many different teaching units and so many different consultants, you learned to see that there wasn't just one way of doing things. You got to see multiple ways. It was difficult when you're trying to, you know, you've been taught how to do it one way and then suddenly you're told, well, just do this variation and stuff. But in the end, you end up doing, a, a, you have a, your own mix of all the things you've been taught over time. And so that, whereas if you're in a small program, you then um, just have, uh, you know, less ways of thinking about things. So you get, at the end of the day, I think you've had, having by being exposed to multiple different people doing things, you can then uh, apply little pointers from all those things as you go along. You know, I think all the training programs are good. I think uh, our challenge in this country is that uh, we need more training positions, but the training positions are controlled by the state health departments, and that's a real problem. And you then need supervision in those places and that's one of the challenges that we see and and we see in some states where that local the, the health departments have alienated the consultants and made it too difficult for them so they've left and that means there's less training positions and this is a real issue in some of the countries i mean we've been fortunate for some reason in sydney the culture has still remained so we've actually got training programs in private practices as well which although they're slightly different but what it does mean is that you may spend three months there. There's an extra registrar on the training program, and that's really good. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, some of the states, there's been no real change in registrar training positions over the last 20 years. And what's happened there is that the workforce has been met by people coming from overseas. So already right. qualified. So, I mean, which, which is part of the conundrum, I think, you face with getting on. We need to have more local people I mean, it's a balance, but if if we've got a big supply of people here, I and mean, certainly you know we've, we've seen the effects of ten years of increased medical graduates, we should have you know to, to meet the population demand, we need to have enough training positions to put these people through. And I think that's that's part of the challenge. You know, there's a big push on for more rural based sort of things. We sort of think you need a combination. And yep. the, the, the challenge that we find with the rural sort of thing is that then the health department, you know, we've got the AMC saying you've got to have more training positions. But then when you qualify through that, the state government doesn't put you on at the hospital. There's a whole fight there. They won't have the funds to 
put you on as a consultant in the hospital for a fractional appointment and things like that. We've had a situation where we trained somebody up in glaucoma surgery who fully trained, went to a provincial hospital. They said, oh, you can't use that glaucoma tube device because it, we need a business case for that. I said, okay, I'll write a business case. And they said, well, actually, you've only got a locum position, so you can't do that unless you've got a full-time position and just went around in circles. So we ended up having to fly those patients, admit them to the hospital, fly them down to the eye hospital to have the surgery and build the hospital for that transfer, which could have been done locally. But wow. that's, that's sort of one of the challenges we face with, you know, if we go to uh, trying to support our regional areas, we need the, the state health departments to also um, step up. You can't just have the AMC pushing people into that area if there's not going to be a state health department that's going to then sort of provide the funds. Mm. And that's a real challenge. One of the things, um, certainly by reputation anyway, um, from, you know, from our generation of medical students and junior doctors is that the ophthalmology training, training program is extremely hard to get onto. Um, do you think that the kind of the process um, has, has changed over the years? Do you think it uh, is maybe interrogating the right things for people to get onto the training program? Look, I think it's, it keeps evolving, the, the selection process. Mm -hmm. It's always a challenge, I think. Um, there's always going to be some people who miss out who should be on the program. And there's, and there's some people who have worked out the system who've got on there that perhaps didn't, you know, wasn't, weren't the best people to be doing it either too. So there's sort of, I can see it from both sides. I mean, there's now part national program where the college now has a series of um, assessment steps, which is so a situational judgment test and a, a CV assessment, and then a structured interview. And then each of the states, particularly New South Wales, will then interview who they think are the best from that group, because they're the ones who've got to do all the employment and so forth. So that group, so, but we can only interview or appoint from the college approved list. So you start with about 120 people apply each year and there's probably a, about 30 positions each year depending on the rotations of people coming out the other end and and also it, it does fluctuate because and COVID has impacted that because people would have gone away for their fifth year and so there would have been more positions but that's not happening as much although still a lot of people are going to the UK for fellowships despite the COVID and get out and so um, I th think that uh, the process has perhaps been evened out a little bit. I still think there's, you know, we there's now unfortunately sort of unaccredited positions in a lot of places, particularly in regional Queensland. We have some in Sydney, which is part of the stepping stone on, but most of those don't end up doing endless service jobs. The ones in the at Sydney Eye Hospital, the only it's a good thing to put on your CV, and then then you've got to go and do something else. You spend too long in those positions, the Eye Hospital, then. It can be detrimental to the process. Yeah, it sounds like, as you say, it's an evolving process. And I would only recommend don't throw your hat in the ring just to find out, get some feedback. I think you want to make your first go, your best go. It's always challenging because you know you have that, all the applications go in in early February and you're only just in your next year. And so you sort of, um, you haven't done much and mm. you might be in the new job, which will give you all the points, but you haven't started that you've only just been in there for a few weeks when you have to write this sort of thing and so you sort of want to you want to hold off 
a year, I think, before you apply. Because they do look at how many times you apply. Not an official sort of thing, but it's sort of, you just sort of think, don't put your hat in the ring just because you think it'd be good feedback. You're better talking to other registrars who are already on the program as to what to do rather than throw your hat in the ring and sort of get feedback and just knock back without much information. Yeah, okay, I see. Make your first shot your best shot. And you don't have to always do eye stuff to get on the training program. It's often good to have show that you've got some expertise in at a registrar level at something else too. That's mm. favorably looked on. I see. Um, John, you mentioned, um, obviously, we've been chatting about the training program um, and then further training afterwards. And you mentioned uh, your multiple fellowships um, in glaucoma, pediatric ophthalmology and visual electrophysiology. Tell us a little bit about those years and, and what that experience of, of doing a fellowship was like, particularly overseas, I believe you, you traveled. Yeah. To. So um, I did some fellowships here as a senior registrar in Australia when I was a senior registrar at the eye hospital. And then for various sort of things, we took a few years before we went to the UK, which is quite good really. And then did fellowships in pediatrics and glaucoma there again. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to get a, a consultant post in the UK just through circumstances and uh, they'd seen what I've been doing. I think, you know, Australian um, specialist trainees are well regarded in the UK because we've had across the board, I think there's very good training. We may not have the same numbers in a surgical specialty or as they do in the UK, but we've had really good supervised training, which then means when you get there, you're well skilled to actually just do the work for them. And so that, you know, that with their population of two and a half, three times the Australian population, there's just, you just get them to see the variety of, of things that are much rarer in the textbooks. And so you get that experience. And, and it's really good, I think, seeing a different system because you can then sort of compare the system you've worked in with how they do things. And, and so then you get, ideas of how to improve things when you come back. So that's what we, and certainly that's one of the things we like seeing when fellows come back, what they've picked up, what's new that's changed that may improve the system here because you get to a point where you have to sort of, well, how does the system work? How do you manage the vast numbers of people to get through the system? And so looking, and, and they're usually multidisciplinary sort of things, bring things to whole teams of people together. And you'll see that on your fellowships apart from you get your personal sort of things, but you also see the systems which are relevant to your practice when you come back, mm. whether that's in public or private or combination. Yeah. You'll have really good ideas that you'll have seen and as well as that you have great friends that you'll um, make for life and good excuses to keep going back overseas. Yeah, exactly, when we can travel. Well, you mentioned a couple of the um, kind of more um, personal and kind of the outside of medicine aspects of, of training. And I was actually interested in chatting a little bit about how you manage to balance all of this, this training with, you know, commitments outside of medicine, having a family, things like that. Did you find that particularly challenging during your training? I think it's always challenging and it's always needs balance and sort of to a, it's sort of often asymmetric in the processes, you know, my wife, she's a professor of genomic medicine, so she's, you know, did a PhD, and so we have to juggle those sort of things. So, right. and so it does sort of um, take. Uh, it, it, you have to navigate that path, 
and I think in the end you get there. It may just take longer the the journey, but it's all part of the journey. Yeah, I see. And you know, I'm uh, not expecting you to you know come up with the miraculous answer for work life balance, but did you have any particular things that you found helped you and and maybe you and your wife kind of get through that process? Look, I think you had to set a little bit of time aside on, on one of the weekend days, but uh, to really sort of keep going. I mean, you know, also uh, when you've got small children, you, you need to sort of work out the childcare that works well. And, you know, um, basically I think that's key because it's in a medical profession, it's sort of unexpected delays and that sort of leads to a lot of stress. So yeah, they're, they're the challenges, how you sort of have systems that can sort of cope with that fluctuation and variability. You are certainly in a unique perspective um, in that you, both yourself and, and your wife are medical. Um, and another thing that I think we hear about a lot is, you know, things like, um, you know, part-time training or, or balance training, things like that. And I think a lot of it has come out of um, perhaps, you know, women of childbearing age bearing the brunt of, you know, ha having surgical training at the same time as wanting to have kids. What do you see um, has changed or improved in that space um, from, from your perspective? And what more can we do? Oh, look, I think a, a lot's changed, but still a lot needs to be done. And I think um, in the past, it was it, at the time I was sort of training, it was just starting to become a fact that people could do part-time training that was just really coming in in sort of the early 1990s was before that that wasn't a thing you either did it or you didn't do it and and so we we have made quite a lot of advances and i think certainly in the eye training program what we see that you know we, we've now finally got um both sexes can have maternity or paternity leave that's sort of happening with mm -hmm. um some of the young fathers taking that paternity leave for the first time which is a great thing i think um, yep. and it sort of also then sort of normalizes it. So it's not just sort of something that women are doing. So I think that's changing, but, you know, it's still very difficult and it's sort of, you know, there's never a right time, but never a wrong time to have a child. So it's sort of um, trying to fit that into the process and just be aware that it's always, it's part of the journey and how do you, it's a tricky process because you can argue, well, you need to do all these cases and then, but, you know, if you have the child, then you come back and do the cases anyway. So it's sort of, you always worry, but I think in the end, it will always take you longer, but that's just the journey. And rather than sort of, because when you get to the destination, which I'm not sure what the real destination is, but <laughs> you know, it, if you think the destination is completed training, whatever, well, there's always another challenge coming up anyway. And you know, yeah. then you're sort of, you kicked off the training program, suddenly you don't have a job and you've got to try and do locums and earn some money or you get a hospital job. And so it, there's always something going on. So if it takes an extra year to that get that position, well, then that's not too bad either. There's always these years of uncertainty along the way. Yeah. Then after you've been practicing for a while, you're too busy, so you then and so you then have to sort of fall back and learn how to do that as well. Well, that's interesting. As you say, it kind of sounds like there's no best time, there's no worst time. You if, if yeah. you're going to do it, you, you just you have just to do fit it. In. Yeah, it has yeah. to fit in. Yeah, I think that, and I think the system is finally starting to you know, be able to be flexible enough to do that. Um, so John, to focus um, back on your kind of current pursuits, both clinical and academic, um, as we've discussed, you're involved in a lot of different 
um, aspects of ophthalmology. Which one of these, if any, is is your favourite? I think it's really the mix of things that makes it a satisfying yeah, right. position because you get to do different bits of everything. And that may be sort of, you know, as a head of an ophthalmology department, you sort of oversee a lot of people and mentor to a lot of people and, and help plan a lot of research programs. So that's really exciting. It's sort of building those links with hospital systems to sort of work out how to get new models of care in place. But then as a researcher, you know, we've, you've got somebody sitting in front of you who, a child who's got a lifetime of blindness, well, that's very strong motivating force to try and find some way of helping them see or at the very least cope with their visual impairment. Mm-hmm. So we, we're coming up to the Paralympic Games. I've got five my patients are on the team there in different sports. So that's right. seeing how they've you know, navigated you know, vision impairment through their life and being there mm. with them as either the vision's got worse or they're trying to preserve what they've got. And then they've been strong enough and uh, they're often inspirational enough to sort of uh, to get to these positions. But they sort of, it's those sort of patients who often inspire you to do more. Because I think that's yeah. one of the things that I would sort of say that quite common to see people overcome challenges far greater than what I've ever had to overcome just to keep going each day. Yeah, it sounds like... But um, as you know, something we've heard before that your patients continually inspire you and, and drive you on and perhaps provide the impetus for all of that work and research and, um, you know, providing better cures and better treatments. Absolutely. I was going to ask particularly about pediatrics. You, you spoke about the difference, the, the horizontal nature of it as a specialty rather than being vertical was what was it do you think that particularly attracted you to to pediatric ophthalmology and why do you enjoy it i think pediatrics is certainly in in ophthalmology is one that really interacts with the pediatricians in the general hospital and so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of the eye conditions are superimposed on other health things so you really got that you got that general medical perspective which i always enjoyed being you know that physician type sort of thing so you have that interaction there and so the eye disease that we sort of look after, I look after children's cataract and glaucoma, but inflammatory eye disease, so people with uveitis, but they're associated with systemic disease like juvenile idiopathic arthritis. And right. so we've got whole lots of people on all the biologic agents and how do you manage the complications of that and the systemic immunosuppression? So there's that. And then, then now we've got the, the prospect of genetic therapies and, and working people up for gene therapies. Um, so... And that's sort of another really exciting area that we're going to. And, and so you bring together sort of precision medicine. From, we can actually image things. We can see the results of what we're doing and um, we make a real difference. I mean, I, just in the, the last 10 years since we've been regularly using the biologic agents, we've seen a reduction in children then needing cataract surgery or glaucoma surgery that are complicating inflammatory eye disease. So right. that's a real benefit for those children. The ones who need it now... Yeah, the UV-related glaucoma cataract is if they've been missed or not diagnosed early enough. Whereas mm-hmm. now, if we get them early enough, we can get them onto the steroid-sparing agents quickly and off onto the biologics, and it just halts the disease process. So it's really very exciting time and satisfying that we can see these kids. And, you know, pediatrics is fun. They're kids, and yeah. they're, they're, you know, they're different from... Uh, dealing with adults who are also fun, but they're in a different way. Yeah. You know, ophthalmology is one of the specialties where 
the kids can continue to see you after they've, you know, whereas they get kicked out of a children's hospital and they get to 16 or 18, yeah, whereas yeah. they can keep seeing the ophthalmologist, they just transfer over to our unit. So we see them. So I have children who I've seen and get from birth all the way to getting through high school. So yeah, that would be very special building up that relationship. Yeah, that's right. So you've seen them over a long time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can definitely hear your passion for that area. Um, you know, the, building the relationship with your patients, as I mentioned, and, and the collaboration with the other specialties. Um, another one of the clinical pursuits that you have um, is laser eye surgery and, and advancements in that area, I believe. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, that's sort of, lasers are commonly used in multiple different applications in ophthalmology, sort of for treating diabetic or retinal problems with ischemia. And that's been around for a while. That's revolutionized treatment of diabetic eye disease and now with the new agents. It's also in glaucoma surgery. There's a lot of laser there. But the other area that we did pioneer was use of laser for cataract surgery. And we'll, there's a laser that rather than sort of having manual incisions, we now use sort of image guided um, laser to sort of plan all the operation. And that's added another degree of precision. And we were there were, we, we got the fourth unit in the world. We sort of went and trained in the States and came back. And so now there's a few units there. It's, it's sort of, um, it's really helpful for the more complex cataract surgery where they've got either small eyes or very unusual refractive areas and things that adds a lot of mm -hmm. precision to what we do. And that will become the future, but it's, we're in a transition phase because of course there's a lot of cost to that technology mm. and uh, the company that makes it sort of hasn't uh, been as, Good at promoting it in this country as they are in some of the other countries and and so i think it hasn't become mainstream yet but i think we'll see that over the next decade and particularly as intraocular lenses change because at the present that's one of the final determinants of what you see is you know what how you calculate the power of the lens are put in there and so yeah. there's a lot of refractive sort of component to cataract surgery now so people instead of having laser refractive surgery you can have cataract surgery and get a new intraocular lens correction of stigmatism, things like that, rather as to have an intraocular lens that accommodates or focuses, takes you back to when you're in your 20s. And oh, wow. uh, whereas at present, there's, you know, there's lots of compromises, but that technology will come, I'd say, in the next 15 years. And then mm -hmm. it'll change how we manage people with, with lens opacities. Right. It sounds like the lasers are one of the uh, the great gadgets that you mentioned. What are what are some of your other favourites? Well, I think the the other things are the imaging sort of things. Now we've got imaging right. technology. We can, in, you know, we can image um, the photoreceptors. We've sort of got technologies coming into the clinic that we can image individual red and white blood cells in the capillary circulation. And so when we finally get a handle on, you know, oxygenation and things like that, that's going to be a, a huge advance. And that's just becoming available in the clinic now but optical coherence tomography is very common and that sort of gives you really a, a cross section very similar to a histology section and it's that res resolution that's we, we needed that to be able to get the new therapies so we can monitor their outcomes because if you can't monitor the outcome anyway then you, you can't tell whether the new therapies work so it's sort of the two go hand in hand so that yeah. and that it's sort of those and now we've got imaging sort of devices that we can take a photo of the whole or the retina at 200 degrees rather than with the 15 degrees you get with the direct ophthalmoscope. So we can see right on the periphery, we can image any age, put the kids on there and get a photo of the entire retina. Whereas when we try to do it clinically, they didn't like the bright light, the kids kick and scream. And, but now we can do that. And so you really, 
really can see the, all the different stages of the disease and hopefully earlier. One of the uh, you know, goals in our chat today I mentioned was kind, kind of demystifying a lot of ophthalmology. And one thing that is really fascinating to me is kind of the dichotomy of ophthalmology in this really amazing cutting edge technology and all of these advances. Um, but then also, I, I think a lot of what people see ophthalmology as is, you know, at its heart, quite a, you know, simple, effective way of changing lives. You know, we think of the world of um, eye surgery in, you know, rural remote communities, the world of people like Fred Hollows. Um, how does, how do those two things kind of marry up in, in the specialty of ophthalmology? Well, I think ophthalmology is, is always about trying to improve people's vision. And so you've actually got a, a really practical sort of outcome that you can make a difference. And, and the outcome may be taking cataract surgery out in, in areas or actually understanding that the reason why they're not seeing so well, which may be an optical sort of thing or maybe a neurological sort of thing or a structural thing. And so I think that's sort of a very rewarding. And so in you know, cataract is the commonest cause of reversible blindness in the world and it's and it is related to sun exposure and so that's why it's you know the highest concentration is in around the equator and you take that around the world that's a lot of developing countries as you go through sort of uh, Indonesia Africa and um, in sort of India and those sort of areas and so treating cataracts you know taking the cataracts out enables people to regain their independence their um, dignity, and they can participate in the community. Whereas prior to that, when you know, in, in, in those sort of areas, if they can't see, then they they can't. It's almost sort of like it's a life sentence because they they're going to die because they can't feed or feed their families or they're dependent on their families because there's not a lot of social security. So those things are really, you know, such a crucial sort of thing when you look at on that mass scale. And so that's cataract and diabetes is the other thing that's really an area that can be treated but you've got to get the treatments to the patients. It is amazing to think about the, just the huge impact that something um, as um, for want of a better word, simple as losing your sight can really lead to, as you say, ostracization and death for someone. Mm. So it can be so powerful, that intervention. Well, I think, you know, from a, a general perspective, losing your sight is the second most feared thing after cancer diagnosis. Mm. So so people, when they worry about things, you know, cancer is sort of the number one and, and losing your vision is number two. Mm. And, you know, then all the other health comes afterwards. So, uh, yeah. you know, heart attack or whatever. Or yeah. things. But, but that's the people have the most concern about if they lost their vision, they'd struggle to function. So we're having to help people who, you know, either born blind or they lose sight and can we re restore sight for them? or prevent them losing more sight. Yeah. So an, another aspect uh, of, of your career, John, um, is obviously education and teaching the next generation of, of eye doctors um, and, um, and you know, do doctors across kind of the spectrum. What, are, you know, we mentioned knowing how to calculate the visual acuity or work out the visual acuity. What are some other um, tips for you, for, for people that you have, you know, maybe at the medical student level and then at the junior doctor level? I think the medical student level is, it's actually sort of getting in and seeing a few patients really would, mm -hmm. and not being afraid of the slit lamp and uh, using that as a magnifier to sort of open a new world. 
Uh, I think that's the sort of thing. And try and, you know, it's difficult because every medical program is slightly different and what time they allocate. But either if you're in the emergency department, the eye registrar comes down, follow them, see what they do. That's a way of getting exposure and getting them to see you because they've got might have a bit of time or trying to get to an eye clinic and um, sit in with the, you know, the registrars are usually um, pretty happy for you to sit there and um, show you some tips and things. I think they're the, it's really trying to get hands on and realize that it's just another piece of kit and it's, although it's got a few fancy lights and switches and maybe confusing, but using it will demystify it. I think that's the sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Then I think, you know, as a junior doctor, realizing the eyes connect to the rest of the body, learning that general medicine, mm -hmm. that's sort of, um, yeah. That's uh, yeah. Good, good advice. Thank you. Um, we're rapidly reaching um, the, the end of our discussion today, John, I've got a couple of final questions for you. Um, you mentioned that, you know, yourself and really every doctor is a, a product of all of the many influences that, you know, the training programs and the hospitals and the people around them um, contribute to in terms of um, your own mentors and then um, maybe our listeners kind of seeking out mentors or looking for advice. Um, what are your words of wisdom in terms of who's best to turn to and, and how we can listen to certain pieces of advice? Look, I think it, it, the mentors change at different stages in your career. And so you'll see mentors when you're students, you'll see that your tutors and things and, and interact with them. Then when you're junior doctors, the registrars are really a crucial point, I think, of, of call. But you'll also then have exposure to some of the consultants, particularly in the emergency departments or when you're on the wards. But it's really sort of taking advantage and, and just you'll find people that meet your personality, have similar sort of goals and stuff, and they're the people that you'll you'll then line up with. And then once you're on the main program, most of the specialty programs have a, a mentor program. I know the College of Ophthalmology does. And, and so you then, there's a sort of a bit of a, a random process. Some people you may have known before who ask you to become a mentor or some people you haven't met and so you become a mentor and you see them through the training program. So that's sort of a more formal process. But I think it's the informal ones that sort of when you're working on units and as you go through, you'll see different, you'll see, oh, I like what they do and perhaps it better than something else. You may not dislike the other person, but you just find that you like that more. And so you'll just gravitate to there and try and work with them. And you might, when you, to do the, your more senior training positions, you'll try and line up with them. And I, I suppose that's what's going on. And that's how the final year fellowships are often organized in Australia. Right. Those people who've enjoyed a particular unit and the culture that's there that fits their culture, they'll want to do more of that. And that's how we have our, our senior registrars in our unit come to us. We have fellows that come to us. And then often over time, people will, will want to stay on and, and as time, you know, we find positions for them. And so you have end up with more like-minded people doing what you're doing. Yeah. So and it so, sounds so, like, yeah, just, just uh, get involved as much as you can and then find people whose personality and interests kind of line up with you, with yours. Yeah. Because it makes life interesting and, you know, and fun because it, it works hard enough. So you want to, yeah. you want to be part of a team that sort of has that, culture that you know we can get it done and it supports each other really yeah well as a um 
request for one last piece of advice, um, John, just as, as we wrap up today's chat. Um, for all of our listeners, you know, the medical students, junior doctors, uh, as they're going through the process of um, both learning the, the medical um, information and then also um, their journey through the hospitals and, and towards a specialty. Do you have any particular piece of advice that you learned along your journey that you can pass on to them today? Look, I think um, one of the things that differentiates a doctor from other healthcare professionals is that you can assess a clinical situation and be able to deal with the ambiguities. And it's not just learning a list of sort of things that you do. You can find it. Or you, we have the training, which is often difficult to write down on a, on a list, but it comes from being on the wards, seeing how people think and, and evaluating that, which gives you that clinical acumen, as people call it. And that comes from being an observing as you go along. And, and that acumen differentiates a doctor from other healthcare professionals because others are often sort of protocol driven and so forth. Medicine's becoming protocol driven, but we need to be able to understand the variations of that because that where the buck stops with us along the way. And mm -hmm. so developing cl clinical acumen and that comes from interacting with patients and colleagues. Yeah. That's a really nice note to, to finish on that. You know, it always comes back to the patient and, and that's what it's always about. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, <laughs> uh, Professor Greg. No, thank you very much. We've really appreciated having a chat to you. Thanks so All much. Right. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Time Out, brought to you by Aidan, Ganisht, Chloe and Noreen. We'd love to hear from you if you're enjoying our interviews or have any ideas for the show on Facebook and Twitter at TTO Podcast and on Instagram at TTO Podcast SSSM. Don't forget to subscribe to The Timeout on Spotify or Apple Podcasts as well. Finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support. <laughs>